Business as Unusual is a thought-provoking podcast that explores the innovative strategies, disruptive ideas, and unconventional practices driving successful leaders and companies in the ever-evolving world of modern business. Subscribe, comment, and share for weekly inspiration with our host, Aisela. Welcome to Business is Unusual. This is Aisla, and today I'm talking with Nora Denuso, CEO of Pitcher. Welcome to the show, Nora. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Aisla. It's great to be here. I'm so glad you're here. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of your business, what the hobby of yours or an interest of yours that you think people who know you might be surprised by? Oh, that's a good one. People who have known me a long time would know that I'm a singer. I come from a really musical family. My dad is a Berkeley College of Music grad. My brother is a symphonic bass player in the Houston Ballet and the Houston Symphony. And my sister-in-law is also a symphonic violinist. So yeah, I have a lot of musicians and artists in my family, but I personally sing. So it doesn't come out as much anymore. I used to be in choirs and things like all through high school and college. And now that I'm into my career and I have kids, I don't really have time to sing semi-professionally. Mostly in the car, in the shower. If you catch me at karaoke, I'm a good one to have on your team. I'm going to keep that in mind. I think we're going to have to have some sort of like in-person meeting at some point with a, a book club group. I'll have to suggest that we go out karaoke. Be like, that would be fun. Nora's on my team. <laughs> we need a we need an anti-racism karaoke playlist. Go. Oh, my goodness. I love this idea already. Now I'm in my head on that. All right. I'll get back to this. But that's an idea. I'm like, wait a minute, squirrel. Tell our listeners a little bit about Pitcher and what inspired you? Like, what in your life? or past set the stage for you to create this business that you are now running. It was interesting how it all came about because I never thought I would be an entrepreneur. Now that I am, it's kind of funny. I think back to like, what were my sort of stereotypes or preconceived notions of entrepreneurialism from my childhood? And because I'm a first generation entrepreneur, my parents are not. So I didn't really have a lot of exposure to real life entrepreneurs in my life growing up. So I think I thought of them as more like mad scientists, people with tons of money, like the ultra wealthy that just could like throw money at project work and things that they were passionate about. Now I think becoming a founder, you realize there are some other potential pathways to get into running your own business. And one thing that my friend Christy Uffelman, who's a coach, she runs this coaching program called Edge Leadership Solutions, and I'm doing her coaching program right now. And she talks about how her mentor had this phrase about how entrepreneurs go into business to fix something that drives them nuts. So now, having gone through the experience myself, I realized that the true and what led me to doing this was not that I had this lifetime aspiration to be an entrepreneur, but that there was something that was just really driving me nuts about the industry that I was in that I could not solve by staying in the lane I was in. I had to get out of it to solve the problem. The really great perspective, actually. I do feel like they there's that old saying, what is it, that necessity is the motherhood of invention. And my friend always said, laziness is a second cousin. 
but but I can hear that in entrepreneurial in entrepreneurial thoughts that it would be also the same thing of noticing that there's this issue problem thing that's irritating and wanting to bridge that in some fashion or shift things. I feel like what I understand of your business is that it was both maybe a functionality of the way the industry ran, but then also maybe some of the culture. Is that accurate? Yeah, definitely. There are some cultural things about ad agencies where I came from that can drive you a little bit nutty. I think everyone has that thought about if you watched Mad Men, you understand a little bit about the industry and ego can drive a lot of it. But what was really driving me nuts that I felt like I had to fix was that smaller businesses would come to our agency. And I always work for independents, like much smaller agencies than you would find in like New York or L.A., I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So most agencies here are 200 employees or less. And I've worked everywhere from a boutique with maybe 10, 15 people up to that like 2, 250 size. So even at the smallest ones, even at the boutiques, it was really hard to work on small business because agencies are just not structured for that kind of engagement with a startup or with a business that's, say, under 25 million in annual revenue, which a lot of people will tell me, Nora, that's not a small business, 25 million a year, that's not small. But in the world that I come from, I was commonly working with companies that were 50 million to 5 billion or more in annual revenue. So things like the Fortune 500 and enterprise companies and down from there. But that excludes a lot of startups that are seeking investment, that are bootstrapping, that maybe have their series A or B round or seed funds in. They might have a few million dollars, maybe they even have 10 or $20 million, but that's not their marketing budget. Like the marketing budget or the ad budget is like a fraction of that. And people would come to us with 50000 100000 to spend, but our minimum was 250000 or 500000 That was just like a gap that couldn't be crossed, right? Mm -hmm. I would try all the time to get creative and say, come on, guys, can we just put a SWAT team on this so instead of a whole washed out team like just a creative director and a strategist, or we would call it like a sandbox team, like the younger people on the team that are hungry to get their crack at working on something high profile or on the come up. Could we put like some of the younger team on there and see what they could do? And then we could help them like tweak the concepts. No, pitch bigger. We want bigger stuff. And like, I get it. That's someone else's business. That's their prerogative. And it's been said, and it's true to a degree that like, servicing a bigger business is just as difficult as serving a smaller piece of business, but there's more to be gained. I get it on paper, but also to me, that's where all the innovation is happening. That's where all the new thinking is happening is in small business, because in big business, there's so much inertia. It's, this is just how it's always been done. There's like a lot of status quo going on. It's like we've created these systems work. They yield like this percentage gain for our shareholders every Year. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to change this too much. If you've ever worked with anybody in R&D land <laughs> as an innovation person, you will find it's a very challenging dynamic because it's old. We can't possibly do that. We can't possibly create a new line for that. So I, I always felt like I thought in an innovative way, like a, in a big picture way and vision. And I like that kind of like big strategic thinking, like the blue sky, the blue ocean. What if this was possible? And that's where so much of that thinking is going on in, in entrepreneurship and not so much in big business. So I always could see that in the entrepreneurs that I talked to and these startups that we would talk to and have these conversations with, but then it would go nowhere 
because they couldn't meet our minimum on our retainer. So that was why I left was to be able to work on businesses like that, that conventionally I just couldn't while I was at the agency. Did you have a specific moment or experience where you realized that was your passion or was it more of a cumulative effect? It was definitely cumulative. There were a couple examples and it's sad. They're not in business anymore. They just went out of business not that long ago, but this company fifth season that used to be in Pittsburgh, they were a spin out of Carnegie Mellon University, which many of like the robotics startups in Pittsburgh are because it's home to the National Institute of Robotics. We have incredible roboticists here, a PhD level, phenomenal. And so they were utilizing robots to do integrated vertical farming, like indoor vertical farming, hydroponic, aeroponic, but utilizing robotics in that process to increase yield. So they were growing like 500,000 pounds of greens under an old warehouse in Braddock, which is like a, an area that's being redeveloped in Pittsburgh. So not a lot was going on there. They had this warehouse they could do their growing in. And that's really not to be totally dystopian, but that's where farming is going in the next 25, 50 years as our planet is going through all these changes and we have global warming. Like that's how we're going to grow our food is indoors. Like all these old shopping, abandoned shopping malls and old abandoned warehouses, like that's where the food's going to be ground. So it's like future tech. It's almost like how like NFTs and Web3 were having their moment. And then we got into this economic crisis moment. And now it's like, you don't hear about them anymore because it's like future tech and or self-driving vehicles or any of that stuff. It's like, those things get put on hold from an investment standpoint when there's like these immediate like lockdowns in terms of finance and stuff. So unfortunately, that's why they're out of business now. But they came to us a couple of times when I was at my last agency and we're like, hey, we were an agency that did a lot of food and CPG work and they were doing this farming work and they were creating these salad kits that they were distributing and selling. And could you help us with that? And we just could never come to the right terms with them, even though they wanted to work with us. I really wanted to work with them, but it just like couldn't meet in the middle thing. That was really frustrating. And I really like the people over there. And now they're often doing other things. And now that I'm consulting, we talk and you say in Pittsburgh, never burn a bridge because <laughs> the city of bridges. But yeah, so that was one. And then the other one was in 2017 into 2018, I was pitching Dum Dum's Lollipops. And we pitched in one, that account. And it was such, such a fun pitch to work on. Definitely my favorite pitch of all time. But I learned through that process because the sort of brief from them, the assignment brief was over half of our business comes from other small businesses buying dum-dums to use as a giveaway at their business. So if you ever took your kids to the bank or the dry cleaner or like we had them at FedEx or the swim school was using them, even like tattoo parlors had them or Uber drivers had them. It was like they were showing up in all these fun places. When you actually start to look for them, then you see them. And I was like, huh, okay. So we figured out from their data they provided, they were probably working, had maybe 100, 200,000 accounts of these small businesses that bought them regularly to give away. And other businesses might give away Hershey Kisses or Jolly Ranchers or other little things. And they were like, how do we make Dum Dums a preferred giveaway? So I started looking into the Small Business Administration's data about how many small businesses are there in the U.S.? Because if they're in 100 or 200,000, is that like a lot? Is that a little? What are we talking about here? What's the sort of total addressable market, if you will? And so through that data, I found out at the time it was like 29.5 million small businesses 
in the country. And I was like, that is way more than I thought. Something from the world working with big businesses where we're talking about tens of thousands of businesses, not millions of businesses. So on the small business side, there's millions of small business owners that they could be tapping into. So they were like not even scratching like 1%, basically, of the total addressable market. So I was like, huh, that's really interesting. And so we ended up winning that pitch. It was really fun. But it just got me thinking about, wow, all this unmet need of all these small businesses that need help and people like agencies aren't helping them. Who's helping them? <laughs> so that was like a wake up moment for me. And now if you look at the SBA's data, it's even more. It's 32.5 million. So entrepreneurship is on the rise. Mm-hmm. And yet we don't have enough people in resources dedicated to helping them grow in the same way that there are lots and lots of resources and grants and funding and tax breaks and everything for big businesses to grow. Like, why are we not giving the same due to small businesses? So that's if you look on my LinkedIn, my headline is, I believe that small businesses deserve to grow too. Yeah, we've talked about it a little, and you already answered this question some, but this is the Business as Unusual podcast. So what's unusual about what you're doing? Well, I think, interestingly enough, it is unusual to to put a stake in the ground and say, I want to work with small businesses. I find not a lot of people do that. Or if they do, they're not as maybe out with it about it as I am. And so I'm constantly looking for that person that's already built the thing that I'm trying to build. Like I'm not, someone must have done it or is doing it or whatever. And I just haven't found them or stumbled upon it yet. But I think maybe it's because people have tried and failed. Maybe it's because they've run into some of the issues I've already run into, which is that small businesses have cash flow issues. They just do like the hits hit harder kind of thing. So. It is not easy to work with small businesses. Like you ride the same waves that they ride, the same roller coaster with them. But, you know, I talked about that analogy. I don't have to think in analogies, but just that roller coaster ride of entrepreneurship. It's, it's not like the G force ever changes. G force is G force, but like mm-hmm. you just get, you're adapted to it. You adapt or get accustomed to the sensation of G force. So I think that's why people who are entrepreneurs and come from a certain cloth or are in a certain way, it's like they just tolerate G-Force better than other people. (laughs) That makes sense. Who would you say thrives with your services? I would say psychographically, not demographically, but psychographically, founders who are willing and ready to participate in their own growth. Because when I encounter people that want what I like to call six minute abs, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> this is business development and growth. I did this for 15 years for agencies. This is not a days and weeks proposition. It's a months and years. So if you're not ready to build a program and commit to executing a program and work it over time and iterate and prove it over time, like I'm sure you do want a million dollars next month, but that's just not how it works. So. Sometimes I think expectations and reality are not aligned. And so I have to try to work through the process of getting to know a founder and making sure that we're aligned about what work and effort this is really going to take. Because when I used to be someone's full-time employee and working on their growth all the time, 50, 60 hours a week, I can make more of a dent myself on their particular business. Now that I consult and I'm not on anyone's business, the majority of my time, like they have to be the one to take 
some of my strategies, they or their team have to take them and execute them and implement them and continuously optimize them. And I can stay on to help and consult, but I'm not going to do all of the execution for you. So I think that's something that I look for is a founder who is really ready to like dive in with me and like really work on their growth with me and not expect me to just do it for them since I'm not anyone's employee anymore. Do you have a specific example of something that illustrates a specific example that illustrates something interesting about what you do with these small businesses or how you work, how you find them something in terms of the services you provide? Yeah, I think one of my favorite types of clients to work with, a lot of the businesses I work with, I would call creative services businesses. So they're either an agency or a design studio or a production company or an e-commerce agency or a PR shop. They're in that world of creative service because that's the world I come from. And people who know me know that I worked on not only pitching the agency to prospective clients, but also the marketing and the branding and the advertising of the agency itself and the positioning of the agency itself. So that's something where, you know, the whole cobbler's children have no shoes analogy comes into play where we know how to do this stuff, right? Like we do it for our clients all day long, but we never turn the attention back on ourselves, or rarely do we make time to work on our own brand or to work on our own positioning or our own marketing very effectively. And that hurts us from our growth and business development standpoint. So I would say the kinds of clients that I have the most fun partnering with are like one to four person creative studios where it's a designer or a duo of designers and they don't have a strategist on their team and they don't have a business developer on their team. The partners of the design studio have had to do that work themselves. And it's not necessarily what they love to do. They do it because they have to because they're a founder running a small business. And you have to wear all the hats. But I think that's where I can provide some unique value because I love working with creatives. I'm not one myself other than like being a musician. As far as could I draw you something on paper? I always tell people how bad my drawings are. Like you would laugh. Like I can't even draw like a Venn mm-hmm. diagram that isn't off kilter. So I'm not an artist, but I joke and say I'm, I like to be the art agent. I'm like the person at the gallery that don't come in here without a check, without your checkbook. Don't come in here without a million dollars in your bank account. This is some dope shit. So being that person, like the gatekeeper and also the hype woman for these creative companies to be able to let people know what they're so great at. Like, I think a lot of times creatives can be really humble. Like you think, oh, they're egocentric or whatever. But a lot of times they're just quiet artists that just love to make art and they don't really want to brag about it and they don't want to boast. And they have a little bit of a self-confidence issue being their own like hype person. So that's a lot of what I end up doing through the strategy work that I do. I picture it's just helping them get on a plan and a strategy to hype themselves more effectively and bring more opportunity in in their doors. That actually sounds really rewarding. I like to amplify folks. I feel like that's my niche. So it feels similar in in, in what you're talking about. Can you tell me about advice you've received that changed the way you approach your work or something in your life that matters to you? Advice I received? 
Yeah. Or yeah. Advice that you go back to and think they ref- carry close to your, your daily activities or momentous choices. I, you know, I've sometimes gotten this question in the, in, through the lens of what's your favorite book and what's your favorite quote from your favorite book or whatever, which I find like is hard to do a lot of the time. But my dad gave me a copy when I was growing up or like teenager of The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. And it's an old book. book. It was written in 1923 or 27. It's old. And it almost reads more like a religious parable. It's like poetry, but it almost is written in that style, right? For anybody who has not read it. But it's a short book, but it has all of these topics, like these poems on this subject, on that subject. So like on friendship, on love, on marriage, on work, on death, on birth, all these topics, right? And the one on work, I've come back to a lot. And the one line from it is that work is love made visible. Hmm. So I really try to carry that through in the work that I do. First of all, you spend more of your time working than probably anything else, most of us. So if you don't love it, if you don't get up every day loving what you do, it makes that work feel like toiling. It makes it feel really hard. But if you love what you do, that whole line, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. I don't know if that's entirely true, right? Because work is still work, right? It's still time away from your family. It's still an effort. But I found a way to like love work because I spend so much time working that I really have to feel like I love what I do and that what I'm doing is making an impact and I think now as an entrepreneur, I'm really focused on this concept of make a dent in the universe while I'm here. And I think the way I do that is by loving the work I'm doing. I appreciate that. And I also appreciate the distinction between work and toil. I I think that is an important lesson. I have often had that perspective that if all if it doesn't feel hard or something, then it's not really work, and it's not true. But it's a it's an easy mindset for me to get into. I appreciate that differentiation there. How, it is work, and you do you are doing some things that require a little bit extra of a lift. They, like you said, there's not so far as you've been able to find people that work with small businesses. Their cadence and their cash flow could be a little differently predictable. How do you stay inspired or keep yourself recharged so that you can come back to the day-to-day of this? That's a good question. And I definitely struggle with like self-care. <laughs> like I, because I love the work I do, I work on it a lot. Like even in my spare time, you've seen some of my spare time activities. You're privy to them, getting involved with social justice and anti-racism work and trying to knit that into the fabric of my life and not have it be separate. But now that I can really combine that and weave it in with what I'm doing as an entrepreneur, finding ways to bring the things I do outside of my working hours, like into my work and vice versa. I'm also a parent of two little kids. They're seven and four. So like a lot of my free time is spent being a mom and parenting for sure. But yeah, just what I guess how I re-energize or stay energized about this, I think I think knowing how many people struggle with building their business and sort of this like notion that we don't, all of us, like we don't know what we don't know, like the zones of genius concept, like you can only be a genius at so many things. I realized that not everyone is a genius at marketing. Like you forget that when you're working in an agency because like literally everybody is. And so you're surrounded by all these marketing geniuses all the time. And so 
you're all working together and collaborating together, but you take yourself outside of that environment and you realize, oh, wow, not everyone knows what I know and they could really benefit from what I know and vice versa. Like, I don't know all that much about finance. Like I always had a finance department at the agency. So I'd be like, finance will figure that one out. Okay, now I either have to figure it out myself or have to outsource it. And I have to find an expert or a genius finance and pay them. So I think just like what keeps me energized is like, when I see the impact that I'm having on my clients and some of the things that maybe are like low hanging fruit or common sense to me are sort of light bulb moments for them. It's okay. I'm changing the way they think I'm changing the way that they approach doing their business and it's helping them and they're seeing success and they're growing. And that energizes me to get up every day and try again, even when there are cash flow issues, even when there are these fits and starts or problems. It's just knowing that I'm really helping somebody. Because for small business owners, it's not just like a paycheck. It's their whole life. Their whole life is tied up in their business. And so the stakes are just a lot higher. So I think if I can feel good about helping make sure those businesses survive and thrive, that's what kind of keeps the fire going for me. And you may have already answered this, but what what does success look like to you? I'm still trying to figure that out. Like at first I was like, oh, it's a metric, right? This whole like put a dent in something. It's okay. There's 32 million small businesses. Like how many of those can I touch a year? What would be appropriate as like a solopreneur? Would it be a hundred? Would it be a thousand? What can I possibly do to make that kind of a dent? Or who could I also get to come along with me to make a bigger dent in it? And so I think that's like, That would get into scaling the business, which I haven't done yet, or like broadening the reach and the impact, which I eventually hope to do. Right now, since it's just me, I'm really focused on, can I help founders of small businesses unlock that next level of growth, whatever that means to them? And so my goal is 100 a year. I did like about 30 in my first full year in business. And that was with building the brand and the business up as well. And so now I'm like, all right, now that it's established and there's like some traction going, could I hit 50 a year, 100 a year? And then I think after that, I will probably have to scale with a team to have even more impact. I've also thought about a lot of everything I'm doing right now is one-to-one consulting, but could I do more of a one-to-many approach where I record the content, distribute the content? which I'm jokingly called small bids only fans, but <laughs> it's not out there yet. It'll probably be on Patreon, but it's in the works. It's in planning, but yeah. And also in the midst of all of this, a friend reached out and asked if I'd start the second business with him, which I'm going to do because he's a very close friend and it's a subject matter I'm passionate about. Yeah. Now I'll be not only the founder of my own business, but also a co-founder in a partnership or joint venture business. So Yeah, certain things have gone to the back burner or fall into my long range planning motivation and certain things are sort of hot fires right now. But everyone says like the first three years in business is the hardest and just working through that. I'm like more than halfway through that first three years. So we'll Mm -hmm. see, see where things go. But lots of opportunity, lots of potential for sure. Well, I also think, especially when you're creating something new, my own experience of creating my consultancy was that there's also an iterative process from going from an established modality to this new way of doing things. You might have a sense of 
this is the direction I want to go. And then as you get into it, you realize, oh, actually, I need to create these other systems or I need to find a different way to do this thing that I thought would be easy to apply to a different type of size of business in your instance. And then you realize, oh, actually, there's probably it. So I think that's also part of the, in addition to that three years maybe being hard, I think it's also when you're innovating, you have to be nimble. You have to be willing to say, okay, this is going to go in the back burner or this idea, it doesn't quite feel like it's ready for prime time and that's okay, whatever that looks like. So I think there is a, yeah, I guess a nimbleness that has to come with that, not getting too attached to things being a certain way while you're trying to create the ship you're sailing on. Yeah, for sure. And like, Pitcher in and of itself is a complicated business because I'm trying to meet founders where they are, which means like the modality or the cost or service type is different for different founders. So I'm trying to do that whole Yelp restaurant menu, like one, two, three, four dollar signs. You have to eat every day. Like some days you can afford a hot dog. Some days you can afford a steak dinner. It doesn't make one meal better or worse than the other. It's just what are you in the mood for? What can you afford right now? So I'm trying to work through that. And so that necessarily makes the service model a little more complex. And then the other half of my business is really like a brokerage that is matchmaking other small businesses to small businesses that could help them. So I joke and call it help I need a, <laughs> I'll come up with a better name for it at some point, but basically someone calls me, they know I'm a fixer and they'll say, Nora, help. I need a website. I'm like, okay, cool. How, what kind of a website? What kind of budget are we talking about? Like I, I have a hard rule, which is no budget, no pitch. Like I will not put you in front of somebody, match you up to somebody if I don't know, you know, what you have to spend. So if someone says, okay, I got $5,000. I'm like, all right, cool. I know people who can do a $5,000 website, but I'm only going to put people in front of you that will do it for $5,000. So then I have my network, I call my people, I'm like, hey, got this opportunity, it's for this type of a company, $5,000 budget, you interested, are you available? Those are two different questions, right? Like available and interested. <laughs> Sometimes people are interested, not available, or available, not interested. So you have to get both of those answered. But then assuming I get enough people that are interested in the opportunity, then I can put together a slate of candidates for that client to look at and consider interview. And it's basically the process that we did in agencies, which we would call pitching. But it's what I would call a lightning pitch, like super fast. There's no RFP. There's no big written process to this. It doesn't take weeks or months. It takes a couple of meetings to get it sorted out. And it's like, all right, I'm going to go with this person. And so in the process of matching them up, there's a fee I would charge to do the matchmaking for the client. And whoever wins, there's a percentage component, which is essentially, hey, look, finder's fee. Like I just dropped this lead in your lap. I did your business development for you. And so that's 10% of whatever the contract value is or 12 months. It's going to be an ongoing relationship. So the person that's winning that bid you know, is in that reciprocal agreement with me. The other thing is that if they send me stuff, I also pay them out 10%. So it's not just one-sided, it's a two-way street. But that can be added on top of what they were going to charge anyway. So if you know it's coming, just add it right on top. Like clients usually are not going to bat an eye at 10% more. So that's how I do that, like matchmaking. And basically what ends up happening in that situation is like, it's one small business getting hooked up with another small business and neither of them knew each other existed. But through my network and like the conduit, like they now know each other exists and they can collaborate and work together. The alternative to that is 
that client goes on Fiverr or Upwork and like trolls around trying to find somebody, maybe finds somebody great, maybe doesn't, and then has to repeat the process all over again. So a faster way to get to a better outcome. Now, it sounds like a great service. And I've heard some of your thoughts about how you would potentially scale it. And I'm excited to see how it evolves because I think there is a niche place for that right now. And I don't know of anything really doing any like any specific matchmaking like that. I know of a couple of places doing sort of person to business matchmaking, but that more business to business matchmaking. I think there's a lot of need for that. And like you said, it's it's helpful to be working with a small business because they maybe understand also your cadence differently and perhaps can can get into your perspective in a different, more aligned fashion because they're also in that same place. I don't know what the right word is. So for folks that are listening and they're just like, I want to know more about what Nora's up to, or I know someone who needs that service, or I need a website, what am I going to do to get into her list? How do they get a hold of you? Where do they find you? They can find me on LinkedIn. You will find me there frequently. You can email me, but I'm faster in the LinkedIn DMs. So yeah, if you feel like you need some help, you can always hit me up. Just your situation, if you want to be part of my network. One thing about my network is nobody pays to be in it. So the only way you get in it is to be good at what you do. (laughs) And I will be the judge of that. And then if you're good, then you're in. And I can match you up to opportunities that across my desk. If you're more on the client side where you need to find a partner for a particular type of project, it doesn't just have to be marketing. It could be other things like I need a debt restructure. I need a contract CFO. I need a lawyer. I need for either IT or for a general legal support if you're a small business. So it could be things that sit outside of marketing. I have those people in my network too. That's what I think the beauty of what I'm trying to build is that it's not just a marketing network. It's anything that could help small business grow. So yeah, hit me up, connect with me on LinkedIn and definitely help you out. Don't go to my website. My website is terrible. It's like a form fill page. (laughs) Awful. (laughs) Strictly awful. It's what they say, the cobbler shoes, right? The cobbler's kids don't have any shoes. And... how it goes now it's just a running joke amongst my like web developer friends so i'll probably never change it i'll just probably make it stay horrible forever so yeah yeah but if you want to know how i think go to linkedin because you'll see a lot of the content i've written there yeah that's how i met you thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today and i look forward to interacting with you more over the years absolutely thanks Thanks,